Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Good morning. Well, I am Pastor Anthony, and normally I remain at the Vine campus where I pastor, but this morning, this morning, I'm sequestered over there, as Dan said, but today I get to talk to you guys, and that is exciting because it has been a minute since I've been here. It has been a while, and I'm excited to share with you guys today. I do have something to say right off the bat. I don't ever make a slideshow at Vine, and I didn't make one this morning. And if you are the type of person that really thrives on a well-presented PowerPoint, I really do apologize. I just am not in the habit of doing that. But if you like story time and you are distracted by PowerPoints, you're welcome, and I do what I can. So God, thank you for this opportunity, and I pray that I would speak your words the way you want them spoken, and I pray that hope would reign at the end of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Months ago, they asked, who do you want to talk about? We're going to do a series on heroes and villains, and I said, I want to talk about Jehu. Why did I say that? Because I like going way into the Old Testament, grabbing stories out of the back 40, and making modern-day applications. I really dig that kind of thing. And I remember Jehu was a wacko, and I'd like to preach on that guy. As I've been studying the story for the past couple weeks, it has been beating me up for a couple weeks. And today I get to share that beating with you spiritually. Aren't you excited? We're going to end with hope. Remember I said that. But I have to say, this is a heavy topic this morning, okay? We're going to have four different topics, and they each come with four different warnings. Yes, warnings. As I'm reading it and studying it and praying about it, I don't know any other way to preach it. So that's how I'm going to preach it. And we're going to end with hope. I mentioned that already, right? But first, some backstory. This is all going to be out of the NLT this morning. I'm going to do all the reading. So I'm going to tell you where I'm reading from, and you can feel free to go there if you like. But everything will be out of the NLT, and I'll tell you where I'm at. The backstory starts in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And God calls out this pagan nobody named Abram. And he says, hey, Abram, I've got an idea. Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And when you do that, Abram, here's what I'm going to do for you. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. That's key. I will bless those who bless you. Curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's intention from the very beginning, and it remains his intention throughout the Old Testament, and we are living in the fulfillment of this intention today. God makes good on his promise to Abraham, right? He makes him a great nation. He does. And we can read about the covenant that God makes with that great nation called Israel, And he reiterates his desire to bless them. This is all over Deuteronomy. You can check out chapter 28. He's like, I'm going to bless you in the field. I'm going to bless you in the house. You're going to be the head and not the tail. You're going to lend to people, but they won't lend to you. God wants to bless his people so that they can be a blessing to other people. God wants his people to be a conduit of blessing for the whole world. This doesn't stop, and it continues. And you can read in Galatians how Paul explains that even now, the Israel of, of God is fulfilling this. 
We are God's people all over the world. God's blessing is spreading to the whole earth just like he intended. Christians are supposed to be a blessing to the whole world, spreading the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. And God's family is supposed to keep getting bigger. Amen? We live in the fulfillment of that. But when Jehu lived, the misguided wacko that we're going to talk about today, God was having some trouble with his people. And we're going to dive in in just a minute. See, God made a covenant with his people. He made Abraham a great nation. And the covenant he makes with them is very similar to the military covenants that one conquering king would make with a lesser king. And it went something like this. Hey, I whooped you guys bad, didn't I? And they'll say, yes, O king, you whooped us bad. And they'll say, hey, well, I got an idea. You pay me tribute and acknowledge me as the only real king you've got, and everything's going to be fine. Can you do that? Yes, great king, we can do that. Well, if you don't do that, that's treason, and I'm going to come back here, and it's not going to be pretty. And they would say, oh, yeah, great king, you got it. You're the only king for us, and we'll pay you, you know, whatever, taxes. You know, and that's how it worked. God made a very similar covenant with the nation of Israel, with very similar caveats. His intention is to bless, but should they turn treasonous, he has every right, just like any other king, to come back there and regulate. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Is that a dated generational term? Come back and enforce his rule. There we go. I've, you know, it's, it's serious stuff. Well, problem. We make it through three kings in Israel, and it happens. They become treasonous wrecks. Through some intrigue and some sin and some judgment, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, I'm trying to think of a nice word to describe him. He's unwise. Let's go with that. And through his lack of wisdom, he ends up getting the kingdom split. And the kingdom goes to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The king in the north isn't from the line of David. He's the, he's the new kid on the block rebel, right? But he takes a huge chunk of Israel with him, starts a kingdom in the north, but he's got a problem. This is all necessary backstory. I swear we're getting to Jehu in a minute. I am going to go over today. I'll just go ahead and I'll assuage your, your worries now. The king in the north has an issue. According to the covenant, those people can only really worship God at the temple. And the temple happens to be, you got it, in the southern kingdom. So he's like, I foresee a problem with my reign. How am I going to keep my people my people if they have to go down south to worship? So he says, I've got a great solution. I will institute mandatory national idolatry. This is phenomenal. It can't lose. In fact, I'll make a couple golden calves. This has never gone bad in the past, right? And I'll put them in two cities. I'll put them in Bethel over here and Dan over here. And he tells the people, guys, it's a long drive back to the temple, isn't it? That is a long way away. Why don't you just worship these golden calves? Hey, actually, these are the gods that saved you out of Egypt. You should just worship here. And he sets up these pagan temples. And he doesn't even bother to make the Levites priests like he was supposed to. He just picks people out of the common people. And he starts making his own festivals. Do you think that would make God mad? Is that treason? That's treason. God is angry. This is the sin of Jeroboam, and God is mad about it. But God is also merciful. We sang about his mercy this morning, didn't we? We sang about his love this morning, didn't we? Any other king that was capable would have marched right in there and just wreaked havoc on that kingdom. But God instead sends prophets. God warns them. God says, turn. 
repent. Don't do this stuff. For eight kings in about a hundred years. And then all of a sudden, this dude comes along named Ahab. I looked on a chart of the northern kings of Israel this morning, and it was a chart mapping whether they were good or bad kings, which in itself is a joke if you've read the Old Testament. And it's, it's listing the kings. It's like so-and-so bad, so-and-so bad, so-and-so bad, 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 bad. Gets down to Ahab, and it says, the worst. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> like, this is true, man. There's never been another king like Ahab. The Bible says he sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And not only that, this guy was bad enough. He had this wife named Jezebel. Who's heard of this person? She was real nasty. She liked to kill the prophets of God. They loved to discourage, antagonize, and kill anybody who was loyal to Yahweh and promote, anybody know who they promoted, their, their favorite idol? Baal. Man, Baal, by the way, was like the young punk up-and-comer god to the Canaanites. He was the cool god to worship, storm god and stuff, you know? So they were all about Baal and all about criticizing and trying to get rid of Yahweh worship. And God sends Elijah to King Ahab. They kill this guy, poor Naboth. He just owns a vineyard that Ahab wanted. And his summer home, probably, in Jezreel, if you guys have heard that term, he's like, hey, Naboth, give me your vineyard. Naboth's like, no, this has been in my family generations. And so Ahab mopes home, and Jezebel's like, don't worry about it, we'll just kill him. So they just kill him. And then she's like, honey, I got you a vineyard. And he's like, yay! Well, that's messed up, man. Listen, when they did that, God had had enough. And one day, Ahab is in his chariot with two guys in the back seat, Jehu and Jehu's aide, Bidkar. They're in the chariot when Elijah, anybody heard of him, shows up and says, that's enough out of you. You're going to be judged on this plot of land right here in Jezreel. And that wife of yours, Ahab, or Jezebel, excuse me, you know what? There's not even going to be enough of her left to bury. Dogs are going to eat her right by the wall in Jezreel. That's harsh. But you know what? Eight kings and almost a hundred years of treason. And it was time to do something. It was time for justice. Lurking in the background, anointed king, almost 15 years earlier probably, in God's eyes, he's been declared king, he hasn't been anointed yet, is Jehu. And our story starts after Elijah has passed his prophetic mantle to Elisha. Elisha has been doing miracles and gaining a reputation in Israel, and Elisha senses it's time. It's time to anoint Jehu, king of Israel, and institute this judgment. And this is where our story begins. Elisha says to a young prophet, he had a school of prophets, this is, this is going to be in 2 Kings 9 and 10. The whole story is in two chapters, so you can camp out there if you like. Beginning of 2 Kings 9, he says to a young prophet, hey buddy, Take this oil. I want you to go find Jehu. He's in Ramoth Gilead because they've been waging war over there against Aram. You find him. You anoint him king and run for your life. Have fun. So the prophet says, all right, I'll do it. 
man of faith. He's not named, but we'll see him in heaven. I'm like, what was that like? So he does. He goes to this city of Ramoth Gilead where they've been waging war against the king of Aram. In fact, the king of Israel has been wounded in this battle, guys. And guess where he has returned to to recover? It's real. Interesting. Well, this young prophet finds Jehu sitting with the other army commanders, and he says, I need to have a word with you in the house. He takes him in the house, and this is what he proclaims to Jehu. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. He pours the oil on his head and declares, I anoint you king over the Lord's people of Israel. Somebody say, that's a calling. That's a calling. We're in verse 6, by the way. 6 to 10. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the family of Ahab, your master. And this way, I will avenge the murder of my prophets and all the Lord's servants who were killed by Jezebel. The entire family of Ahab must be wiped out. What does that mean? Here's the qualification. I will destroy every one of his male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I will destroy the family of Ahab. And then he, he reiterates the same thing Elijah said. He says, Dogs will eat Ahab's wife Jezebel at the plot of land in Jezreel, and no one will bury her. And then the prophet opened the door and ran. Well, we're going to find out why he ran away from Jehu in a minute. But here's my first point in the Jehu story. Jehu had a definite call. Jehu was positioned and commissioned. You're going to be the king. This is what you're the king to do. He had a definite call. Here's the warning that comes with that, that point. A calling from God is not enough to make you a hero of the faith. A calling of God might actually be a privilege, but at the end of the day, it doesn't put any of us in any sort of elite category. It doesn't elevate you into some special category or echelon or anything. You know what they are. A calling from God is a responsibility for you to fulfill. And by itself, it's not really anything more. But Jehu was called. Now, that's not enough to be a hero of the faith. This story is going to illustrate how Jehu missed being a hero of the faith. He should have been. This is one ingredient that could have led to that. But a calling by itself doesn't warrant that. You guys want a snapshot of like an afternoon in the Vine neighborhood? I'll give it to you. I did this first service and I thought it was cool. Last Saturday, it's about two in the afternoon. I'm walking to get my coffee at Bagel Beanery. And this guy says, nice beard, bro. And I'm like, hey, thanks. And he stops just before he walks by me and says, hey, can I ask you a question? I'm like, sure you can. He says, you know what? I've had a really rotten day. Do you have $4? I don't want food. I'm not hungry. I want to buy a beer and some cigars. And I'm like, all right. I got you, dude. It's sunny. It's Saturday. Like, you want to get a beer. That's cool. He's like, no, that's not it. He's like, I've had a rotten day. He's like, my girlfriend just kicked me out. I didn't even take my wallet. I got no money. I've got the clothes on my back. I just want a beer, man. And I looked at him and I said, have you drank already today? He's like, yeah, I did add one beer earlier. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to ask you more questions because you asked me for money. I'm like, are you an alcoholic? Or are you drunk right now? He's like, no, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not drunk. I just want a beer, man. And I'm like, why do you want cigars? He's like, well, I don't want to ask you for enough money to buy a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I was like, 
you're smooth. I'm like, let's get you a beer. So we walk across the street to Southwestnage Market, and I'm like, brother, what do you smoke, man? I'm not going to buy you these cheap cigars. He's like, oh, man, Newports. I'm like, all right, go get a beer. I'll buy you a pack of Newports. So he's over the top psyched about the cigarettes. Anybody ever smoke cigarettes? Somebody buys you a pack of cigarettes? You are, like, singing their praises, man. So that's where he's at, okay? And he gets the cheapest beer he can find, and he tells me, he's like, bro, since you're getting me cigarettes, I'll just get this. It's like this little tiny ice house, and I'm like, it's cool. So I get him the beer and the smokes, and then he says, hey, are you going back to that coffee shop? Can I talk to you on the way back? Do you mind? Do you mind if I hang out with you for a minute? I'm like, no, man, come on. So we walk back, and he starts telling me about what's going on in his life and, you know, his plan to handle stuff, and, you know, we get back to the bagel shop, and I'm like, hey, man, I was like, I've got one more thing to give you, brother. I said, I'm a pastor. I love the Lord. Can I just pray with you real quick? He says, absolutely. So I grab his hands to pray, and I say, dear Lord, and all of a sudden I get like a sigh and an eye roll in my spirit. (laughs) I'm going to change his name to Sam. I'm like, okay, God, you know Sam. Sam, you know the Lord. (sighs) I'm like, Sam, bless Sam, you know, whatever. I prayed some encouragement. But immediately I knew. It's like, this guy already knows the Lord. He's backslidden his all get out. You know, so... When I'm done with the prayer, he tries to outpray me, right? Now he's praying for me, and he's quoting five times more scripture than I quoted, you know? And I'm like, you just asked me for a beer and cigarettes, man, you know? So we get, we're done with the prayer, and he's so excited now. And he's like, man, I should have known when I met you. I'm a Christian too. I'm just really backslidden, but I should be doing what you're doing. I'm like, oh, Sam. I said, tell me that's not true, man. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, tell me, you're, you're pulling my leg right now. You're called to be a pastor? He's like, yeah. And he kept reiterating this phrase, I know what I'm supposed to do. He kept saying it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be doing what you're doing. I know I'm supposed to be in the ministry. I'm just backslidden. I'm real backslidden. I'm like, dude, I've got to be honest with you. I'm like, that's a nasty spot. I'm like, because if God can't win you over, if you really are called to do that, if he can't get you with his grace, if he can't get you with his mercy and his tender kindness, he's going to use that stick. And he's going to grab you by the scruff of the neck and drag you home. And he's like, whoa, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Sam, do you want him to drag you home? And he says, well, I guess he's already started because I just met you. I was like, amen. <laughs> Go home, Sam. A calling by itself He was so excited. Guys, that's a responsibility. Doesn't make you a hero of the faith. Well, now the story of Jehu gets weird. All right, Jehu goes back to his fellow officers that he was sitting with, and they say this about the prophet. They say, what did that madman want with you? See, that's how Jehu and his buddies thought of the prophets Yahweh. They're crazy guys. The Hebrew word is sugar. Sugar. What did he want with you? And he says, oh, you know that type and how they talk. Oh, man, nasty. Really? That's his view of, of the Lord and the Lord's people? But they finally get it out of him, and he says, hey, they made me king. And they say, that's great, you're king. What do you want to do? And he's like, well, if you guys really support me, stay here and make sure nobody leaves the city of Ramoth Gilead because I'm going to go to Jezreel, and I'm going to kill the king. Now, I know that the king of Israel is wounded, and he's there to recover, right? And I know that the king of the southern kingdom is helping us in this battle, right? And he just left the battle to go visit him. So I'm going to get a twofer. So stay here. So he heads off to Jezreel, all right? And in Jezreel, there's a dude on the watchtower. And the dude on the watchtower looks out, and he says, hey, king, there's some horses coming. And the king's all wounded and stuff. And he's like, oh, find out who it is and if they come in peace. So they send a rider out. 
writer gets to Jehu and says, oh, hey, it's you, <laughs> right? Uh, do you come in peace? And he says, basically, shut up and fall behind me. He says, what do you even know about peace? What do you have to do with peace? Just fall in line. Rider falls in line. So the watchman shouts to the king, hey, the rider met him, but he's not coming back. The king's like, send out another one. You know, meanwhile, they're getting closer. Second rider, same thing. Jehu's like, just fall in behind me. Okay. We're starting to realize Jehu's got quite the reputation, right? You don't mess with this dude. Now the watchman's on the tower, and he's saying, hey, they're close enough for me to see who it is. The guy's driving like a maniac. So it's got to be Jehu, the son of Nimshi. He's driving Meshuggah, right? He's driving crazy. How do they know it's him? Because he looks crazy. See, he called the prophet of God the madman, but he's the one with that reputation. Guys, for the rest of this story, remember this. Jehu is a psycho. He's a psycho. He's crazy. And there's a whole generation of people that don't understand who Kaiser Soze is, but that's this guy. He's bad. He's bad news. Okay? So the king finds out that it's Jehu, so he tells his charioteer, just get ready. We got to go meet him. So they drive out to meet him in the field. And he's like, hey, Jehu, this is the commander of his army, right? Ahab died in battle a while ago. This is Ahab's son, Joram. Joram goes out and says, Jehu, you know, commander of my army, buddy, do you come in peace? And Jehu says, how can there be peace so long as, so long as the whorings and the adultery and the idolatry of your mother Jezebel abound in the land? And Ahab's like, or excuse me, not Ahab, Joram is like, it's treason. And Jehu just shoots him dead right there in the field. So the king of the south sees what's going on, and he tries to run away. And Jehu is riding behind him screaming, kill him too, kill him too. And they shoot that guy dead. Wow. Intense. It's just, you just got anointed king. You've killed two kings already. Amazing. So he makes it into the city. You know, they kill the king. This is 925. Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, throw him, Ahab's son, into the plot of land that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Don't you remember when you and I were riding along behind his father Ahab and the prophet Elijah gave this message to him? I solemnly swear that I will repay him here on this plot of land, says the Lord, for the murder of Naboth and his sons that I saw yesterday. So throw him out on Naboth's property, as the Lord had said. Jehu witnessed a prophetic word given against the king by one of the most intense prophets that there ever was. He remembered the exact word given, enough to actually fulfill it, and we're going to discover he still misses out on being a hero. That's intriguing, but it's true. All right, he's making it to the city now of Jezreel, and guess who's popping out in the window? Jezebel. She's prettied herself up. She sits in the window, and she says, oh, is that you, Jehu, you killer of your master? And Jehu says, who's on my side up there? And two or three eunuchs look out, and he says, just throw her down. So they push her down, and it says that her blood spattered all over the wall. Not good enough for Jehu, though, because he then tramples Jezebel with his horse. Is this disturbing? A little bit. This is going to be a disturbing message till the end. I said we're going to hope, right? We're heading towards hope. Then he goes in and eats and drinks. Okay? Verse 34, verse 9. When Jehu went into the palace and ate and drank, afterward he said, Someone go and bury this cursed woman, for she is the daughter of a king. 
He remembered the word of the Lord. He's got the same word twice, once from Elijah and once from this young prophet. He goes in and eats and has some Miller High Life, and he's ready to completely disregard the word of the Lord. Not surprising. He thinks the prophets are madmen, and he doesn't take Yahweh too seriously either. That's the kind of man we're dealing with. They go out there, though. Dogs have already eaten Jezebel. And he rightly says, this is what, the God, what God said to, to Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. So again, he recognizes a fulfillment of prophecy. Strange. Well, now there's some political intrigue. You guys ready for this? He's in Jezreel, but the big fortified city of the northern kingdom is the city of Samaria. Dude, you would have a hard time getting in there, okay? I'm not sure it looked like Helm's Deep, but this is what I think of in my mind. It helps me. Thank you, Tolkien. So he decides... This is where Ahab's 70 sons, and that could mean also grandsons, are being reared and being trained to be royalty. You know what I mean? This is where they're being brought up by the chief men of the city. So he sends him a letter, and he says, Hey, chief men of the city, it's Jehu here. I've killed two kings already. I'd like to kill another one. Anoint king, the best of Ahab's sons, and then I'm going to come over there and we'll duke it out. And the messengers get this. In Samaria, and they're like, two kings couldn't stand against this guy. What the heck are we going to do? So they send him a letter back that in the New Anthony version says, we're not crazy. We're going to do whatever you want us to do. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Just, you know, bring the heads of the chief's sons, bring the heads of Ahab's sons, and come meet me at Jezreel. Now that could mean a couple things, couldn't it? It could mean bring the people that are in charge of Ahab's sons, like the heads of the sons, like the chiefs that have been rearing them. It could mean bring the leaders of the sons themselves, or it could mean send me UPS 70 heads. Well, that's what they do. They send him 70 severed heads of Ahab's sons and grandsons. And Jehu says, put them outside the city of Jezreel. And the next day, when they've been there 24 hours, he says this, and this is in chapter 10, 9 to 11. In the morning, Jehu went out and spoke to the crowd that had gathered around them. You're not to blame, he told them. I'm the one who conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? You can be sure that the message, the Lord was, that the message of the Lord that was spoken concerning Ahab's family will not fail. The Lord declared through his servant Elijah that this would happen. He's slapping the Lord's name on his deception, by the way. Although it is true, God did declare judgment. Then Jehu killed all who were left of Ahab's relatives living in Jezreel and all his important officials, his personal friends, and his priests so that Ahab was left without a single survivor. It's okay that it kind of takes a turn here and gets a little somber because was that in the original mandate? Who is he killing? The 70 sons and grandsons are dead. The males are dead. Okay? Point two. Jehu was definitely called. Jehu was definitely obedient to the call. He actually went over and above. Sick to think about. He went over and above. But you know what? Obedience, even obeying a specific call by itself, is not enough to make you a hero of the faith. 
Does that sound strange? We're going to work that out. Obedience by itself, by itself, is not enough to make a hero of the faith. It wasn't enough. We should be happy for Jehu. Look, if you're obeying every little thing you think God has told you, and you're actually going over and above and obeying other things that you're pretty sure God would have told you if you got around to it, that might just make you a Pharisee or a monster, but not a hero of the faith. If you don't have, this is the warning that goes with this point, if you don't have God's heart in obedience, you can obey wrong. You can obey wrong. Jehu definitely had a call. He definitely responded to that call. He was definitely obedient. He obeyed wrong. Does he seem to be liking what he's doing here? Yeah, to a sick degree. You know what? We have the benefit of the prophet Ezekiel's writings, and we can know that God will deal justly. God will punish if people are, you know, need punishing at the end times, but we also have an assurance that he is not enjoying it. He said, I get no pleasure from that. None. I want everybody to live. I want you to choose life. I want to draw all people to myself. I want my family to get bigger. Remember Genesis, guys. I want to bless your socks off. I want the whole earth to be blessed through you. I'm not going to wake up on Judgment Day excited. That's not my heart. But it is Jehu's heart. With the wrong heart, you can obey wrong. How's everybody doing? You guys seen the new Captain America? Anybody? It's good? Haven't seen it yet. I'm going to get around to it. Thumbs up on that one? Excellent. Next, some weird stuff happens. More weird stuff. Remember he killed the king of the southern kingdom too? Also not his job description? Well, he leaves Samaria, and he meets 42 people that are going to visit the southern king. Remember, he'd been helping out in Israel, in Ramoth Gilead, waging war. So they're on their way to his kingdom, and he meets these people and says, Who are you? They're like, We're relatives of the king. And he kills them too. 42 people just kills them. Wow. And when he's done doing that, when he left there, this is verse 10, 15 to 17, maybe the most interesting part of the story happens, in my opinion. He's just killed 42 people he wasn't even supposed to kill. The guy's a psycho. When he left there, he met Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was coming to meet him. Who is this Jehonadab guy? Well, it turns out he's mentioned a few different times in Scripture, and he was a conservative leader at the time, a popular religious and political figure in Israel. He was against Baal worship and for returning to faithful Yahweh worship. He didn't so much like big cities. He wanted to get away from the big city life and go back to kind of a nomadic wilderness existence. The footnote, actually, in my NIV study Bible says he was a conservative leader. Going to meet Jehu. Jehu seems to agree with some of the things he agrees with. And then Jehu asks him this. Verse 15. After they greeted each other, Jehu said to him, Are you as loyal to me as I am to you? Yes, I am, Jehonadab, the conservative leader, replied. If you are, Jehu said, then give me your hand. So Jehonadab put out his hand, and Jehu helped him into the chariot, and Jehu said, now come with me and see how devoted I am to the Lord. And when they arrive in Samaria, he kills everyone who was left there from Ahab's family. 
Who is he killing now? He's killing more people. He says to this guy, this guy that he knows is a popular leader in Israel who's against Baal worship and wants to support Yahweh worship, and he says, come see my zeal for the Lord. And then he does it by killing more people. He does it by being zealous, not for the Lord, but for a cause. Here's the fourth point, third point, excuse me. And this is why the message is called misguided zeal. Jehu is called. Jehu is obedient to the call. Jehu is zealous. But here's the warning. You guys ready for this? This is a big one. Jehu confuses being zealous for a cause with being zealous for the Lord himself. A cause that he's just certain God supports. You know, we can read in the prophet Hosea. Don't have to go far. Just open up to chapter 1. God tells Hosea, Look, man, just trust me. I need you to marry a woman of a questionable reputation. I'm being nice there. They have their first son, and Hosea gets his first prophetic word in verse 4. And God says, Name the kid Jezreel, because I am about to punish the dynasty of Jehu and avenge the murders that he has committed in Jezreel. He is so sure. He's zealous for the Lord. And he's already a murderer in God's book. He's so sure he can slap Yahweh's name on that cause that he's zealous for and equate it with being zealous for God. Guys, we cannot do that. We cannot do that. And, you know, love, hate, Facebook, whatever. There are some blogs I can't read anymore. Because they're zealous for some causes. And they're zealous for some causes that I, as a Christian, have some strong opinions about. And their opinions would agree with my opinions, but I'd read them and I'd think, I don't feel good right now. Why don't I feel good after reading the blog of this person that agrees with me? And the Lord showed me it's because it's hateful, it's incendiary, it's slanderous, it's snarky, it's sarcastic, it's offensive, it's polemical. The whole attitude is anti-Christian. This whole thing you just read is an outburst of anger. How do I feel about that? It's Jehu saying, are you as loyal to me as I am to you? Pop up in my chariot. I'm not going to be deceived by that, man. Supporting a cause is not the same as supporting the Lord, even if you slap his name on it. What else is out? We got Captain America out. We got anything else good? (laughs) Heaviest one coming up. Man, we're just getting weightier and weightier. Jehu now has solidified his reign, which may or may not have been his real intention all along, and just slapping God's name on his actions. Okay? And he goes into town, and he calls a meeting of the people of the biggest city in the northern kingdom, and he says, you know what? These kings, Ahab and his sons, they've been worshiping Baal all wrong by worshiping him just a little bit. We're going to worship him a lot. I want to call a special Baal fest, and I'm going to give everybody I love Baal robes, and you come if you're a follower of Baal at all, and if you don't come and you claim to be a follower of Baal, I'm going to kill you because you're not the real deal. So if you're a follower of the Baal, you know, you better come to this Baal fest, and we're going to have a feast and a sacrifice to Baal, and it's going to be the biggest deal ever for Baal worship. So all the Baal worshipers come, probably because they're scared not to come, because Jehu is a psycho. So they come there. And he really does do it. This is in in chapter 10. You can read it. It starts in verse 18. 
he does a sacrifice to Baal in the temple of Baal. He offers the sacrifice himself. But as soon as he's done offering the sacrifice, he has the 80 guys that are stationed outside who have already made sure there are no worshipers of Yahweh inside, just Baal, kill everybody. They kill everybody in the whole place. Was this in the mandate? Was this in the job description? Wow. Well, maybe this was because he wanted Jehonadab to see how loyal he was to Yahweh, and he didn't like Baal worship too. Maybe this was just political. But for whatever reason, he kills all of these people, tears down the temple, burns the Asherah pole, destroys the Baal stone, and makes it a public latrine. And he really does eradicate Baal worship from Israel by killing everybody. Which I'd like to point out, is not the way to get people to change their beliefs. <laughs> Ever. Wasn't then, certainly isn't now. But 1028, it says, In this way, Jehu destroyed every trace of Baal worship from Israel. You know what he didn't do, though? He did not destroy the gold calves at Bethel and Dan, which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had caused Israel to sin. He doesn't get rid of the original problem, the reason God was angry in the first place. Wow. What are we supposed to do with that? Jehu, you messed up. I'll tell you what God does with it. Verse 30. Nonetheless, boy, just that intro should make us hesitate. Nonetheless, the Lord said to Jehu, you've done well in following my instructions to destroy the family of Ahab. Therefore, your descendants will be the kings of Israel down to the fourth generation. Okay. Jehu was called. Jehu was obedient. Jehu was zealous. And at the end of the story, Jehu is blessed. Jehu is rewarded. He reigns 28 years. That's pretty good. Four generations of his sons reign in Israel. Here's the warning. We don't dare equate the blessing of God with the favor of God. God causes his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, guys. He loves to bless people. The fact that we're here today and it's sunny and not snowing, yet, might be, can't see, is a blessing. But guys, the Apostle Paul lived a life where he was getting his butt kicked and getting shipwrecked and getting lost and he was beaten, hungry, and naked all the time. And he was confident he lived in God's favor. He was confident that he was an apostle. We don't dare equate God's blessing with having God's favor. Because I'll tell you what, Hosea gave us a heads up that Jehu was already in trouble, right? Last part of chapter 10, under the great big bold heading, The Death of Jehu, says, Jehu did not obey the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel to commit. And about that time, the Lord began to cut down the size of Israel's territory. And it talks about how the kings of Aram started to slowly take territory. You know what this is, guys? God said, hey, yeah, you did what I told you to do. Four generations of your kings can reign. And then he starts pushing the judgment domino. He's whittling down the size of Israel 
So that when Shalmaneser from Assyria rolls in with his war machine, they're not strong enough to resist. Judgment had already been started. Judgment had already been started. Jehu doesn't even see it. Jehu is oblivious. He's called. The calling isn't enough to make him a hero. He's obedient. The obedience is not enough to make him a hero. He's zealous. But that's not enough because he's not zealous for the Lord. And finally, he's rewarded for doing exactly what God told him to. But that doesn't even prove that God is happy with him. In fact, we know that God is unhappy with him and the way he's leading the nation. And judgment has already begun. This should make us nervous. Because these principles are reiterated in the New Testament. They're reiterated in what I think is the scariest verse in the whole Bible. And guys, we are heading towards hope. We're going to turn that corner. Okay? So as of right now, say goodbye, Jehu. You're done. We're finished with your story. You're a psycho. Let's go to Matthew 7, 22 to 23. Scariest verses, I think, in the Bible for Anthony Davis. It says, on judgment day, this is Jesus speaking, on judgment day, many will say to me, a few? Many. Horrifying. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. Man, they sound like called people. They sound like obedient people. They sound like zealous people, confident. But God's going to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. One more time for ultimate effect. I never knew you. Wow. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Heaviness done. Chapter closed. Listen, guys. This isn't the Old Covenant anymore. This is not. A new one has been initiated, and we, lived in the most, we live in the most privileged time that has ever existed on the planet because we live post-cross. Because Jesus' suffering, beating, death, and resurrection purchased for us the right to relate to God in a totally different way. A totally different way. Completely unlike this. He's, he gives hints of it in Jeremiah 32, where he says, you know what? I'm going to put my law on your heart. I'm going I'm to give you a new heart. You're going to want to obey my commands. He talks about it a little bit of glimmer in Ezekiel 36, where he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to take out that heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, guys. This is what's coming, okay? And the writer of Hebrews pulls those ideas right out of the Old Testament. And in Hebrews 8, says this. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I'll put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And you won't even need to teach your neighbors, nor will they teach their relatives, saying, Know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me. Know me already. If you have been a Jehu, and they're out there, and you can do it without killing anybody. You can do it quietly as a librarian, zealous for causes and thinking that's zealous for God, thinking that you're obeying everything, and really you're completely distant from God's heart. 
knowing that you're called and thinking that's good enough to put you on some different level where God is magically happy with you. But you don't know God and God doesn't know you. That doesn't have to be you one more day. And if you're concerned that you're going to turn into a Jehu one day, don't let the devil kick you with that. Today is the best day. I think it's May 16th, I'm pretty sure, 15th. May 15th, thank you. May 15th, 2016 is the best day in the history of the universe to give your life to Jesus Christ because it's today. No more Jehus today. No more hopelessness today. No more wondering about that past today. No more wondering about those questionable things you did and you were so sure they were God and now you think they're not. Don't worry about that anymore. Cut it off today. Those regrets, gone today. Know God today. Let him put that new spirit in you just like he said he would. This would have solved Jehu's whole problem, man. Jehu could have been one of the greatest heroes in the Old Testament if he would have done what God wanted him to do, if he would have grasped what God's heart really was, if he would have thought back to Genesis. Man, we need to be in right relationship with the Lord because he wants to bless us. And God would have blessed that northern kingdom so much, it would have eked down to that southern kingdom. And then it would have exploded to the whole world, and history could have been different if Jehu hadn't just obeyed, but had done it with God's heart. And that is the offer that we all have today. And if you're led by that new spirit that God is offering to put in you today, you know, it's interesting. This miraculous thing happens. According to Romans 8, and you can read about it yourself, you become a child of God. No God today. No God today. Calling, obedience, zeal, none of that is enough. But you know what is? Walking in relationship with God. That is. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you for the word that you gave us. Thank you for the whole thing. Thank you for the lessons that you can teach us through it. Thank you that it's alive. But most of all, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for suffering what you did so that we could relate to you in a new way, so that we could have your spirit, have your heart, be made new, and be your children. If you've never accepted the Lord as your Savior today, or if you need to recommit, I would invite you to do that. I'm just going to pray that prayer. Jesus, today, today, I want to cut off my past. I've been a sinner. Forgive me, Jesus. Today, be my Lord and Savior. You died for me. You bought my life, and you can have it. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I want to know you. Put your spirit in me and show me what it looks like to live for you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.